0: Matt Boudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. Glad to have you here. My guest today is Grammy-nominated recording engineer Todd Burke, who's worked with Ben Harper, Jack Johnson, The Kooks, Bell & Sebastian, Fitz & The Tantrums, and many, many others. Todd talks to us from his studio located in Los Angeles. Really looking forward to it. Todd Burke coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about working remotely. Most of what I have to say here pertains to those that are mixing. It could pertain to those that are mastering. And of course, we can't rule out the concept of remote producing, which does occur. So here are my thoughts on that. First off, remote work can be a real challenge. No matter where you're working from, whether you're in a primary market like a Los Angeles or a Nashville, or you're in a, a small town in the middle of nowhere, Working remotely can present numerous challenges. Your ability to communicate effectively with people remotely is key, and it's gonna make or break your experience and your client's experience. So let's start off at the beginning. When people reach out to you, the first thing you gotta do is respond in a timely fashion. 24 hours is fine, but a little past that, they might start to think, oh, maybe this person doesn't check their email or they don't care or it went into spam. Once you see the communication, which is usually going to come across over email, uh, maybe if you're on sound better or engineers, it's going to come through those portals. So make sure you respond quickly. And of course, it's important right up front to identify any red flags that you think might be a problem for you. And some things you might want to think about are, is this the right kind of music for me? You know, we've we've talked about that in the past on past episodes about If you're the rock person, maybe you're not the best person to do the hip hop track. I don't know. That's up to you. You got to figure that out. And, you know, generally you want to weed out anybody that you think is going to be presenting problems for you, uh, has so little experience that it's going to be more hassle than it's worth. Once again, these are things only you can identify and You know, if you are kind of early on in your career, you know, you may have to take some of those kind of amateur uh, yellow page crowd, as I like to call them. That's kind of a 20th century version of, I guess, the Craigslist crowd. You know, the people that are just generally trying to, you know, get a foothold in a studio to do something and they've never done it before. So figure out if they are right for you, but that is all in the communication. And if you're going to turn somebody down, turn them down immediately, turn them down kindly, be a pro. Don't be insulting. And, you know, you can throw yourself under the bus, like, oh man, my schedule is just too crazy. Or I don't think I'm the right person for the job. You might consider, you know, somebody else. All things that you can say just to get out of the gig if you don't want the gig. Now, if you do want the gig, most certainly, the next step is to quickly clarify if you are confused about what it is they need. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do is meet them on Zoom or FaceTime or whatever video service you want to use, just offer to meet on a video call to put a face to the client. That human connection cannot be underestimated. The other thing that that helps with is language barrier. Yes, many people in the world speak English. However, not everybody speaks it fluently and they can stumble through a conversation. You know how it is. If you read somebody's email and you only communicate over email, it's going to get a little nutty and you're going to like start to lose details in that communication. I find that by getting somebody on a Zoom call, I can see their face. I can know whether or not they're understanding what I'm saying and I can, you know, work my way through the conversation a lot easier. So, a, a video call, a Zoom call, whatever you want to do there is super effective and it'll give you the opportunity here to reiterate your process. Let's say you're mixing or Let's say you're mastering, you know, let them know, okay, this is how I work, this is what happens, here's what you need to expect. This is where you can figure out like, hey, I work in Pro Tools and this person is giving me stuff in Ableton or Logic and how do you handle that? All the details can be hammered out in a simple Zoom call. Uh, The other thing, commit to a timeline with this person and stick to that timeline. Do not leave these people hanging, Be, be a pro. And no matter if they are the most famous person in the world or the least famous person in the world, make sure you treat them as you would expect to be treated if you were in their shoes. And then when we get around to the talk of money, you know, I find it most effective when you're dealing with people that you've never dealt with before. I think the thing to do is to expect 50% down and 50% on completion. Whatever tools you use to do that, like I said, for those of you that are going through SoundBetter or engineers and using those portals, uh I think they make accommodations for that. I know SoundBetter does. Um however, if you are not using those portals, uh, create an invoice. You I think you could do PayPal invoices where the potential client can pay half on that invoice and like if you're in the United States, some people in Europe like to use some of these apps that transfer money internationally that you may not be familiar with. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying that if you're not familiar with it, do a quick Google search and figure out if it's bullshit or not, right? Make sure it's something that's not related to some kind of financial scam. Like we've been seeing in the news with people using, oh, I don't even know what that, that company is. That's been a uh, Zelle, right? Isn't that the company I think that people get screwed over on? So, do your due diligence, make sure it's something legit. All right, so let's assume you got the gig, you got your 50%, you've got your audio. Let's say you're mixing. If there's an approval process involved, which there generally always is, make sure you use a service that allows for listening in a lossless format. Do not send an MP3, do not send uh, a low-res thing or something that you're gonna leave to chance the possibility that they're gonna import it and it's gonna get down sampled into some piece of shit, right? Don't do that. Use something like Sampley.app. That's, I find, to have the most success with that. Then, when it comes to mix revisions, for example, I'm a huge fan of using audio movers in combination with Zoom. That's super effective because they get to hear the audio in just about real time and a decent quality, and you can see them on Zoom, and you could say, what do you think? You know, oh, you want the kick drum up two dB, or you want, you know, little less vocal reverb? Is that enough? And even if they're listening on headphones, having that real-time conversation can get you to the end result much faster. You got the mix or the master to them. Next thing you got to do, make sure you get that invoice out ASAP. Do not wait. Uh, sometimes I will send the audio, the final audio, and then I will follow that up with, by the way, and here's a link to pay me. End of story. Once you get paid, do a follow-up. Check in, you know, simple email. Hey, checking in, making sure everything, you got everything you need. If I can be of any service on anything else, blah, 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 let me, you know, let me know. That follow-up is key. They get it, get the sense that you actually give a shit about what you just did, instead of just blowing through it, getting paid and moving on. Now, if you had a bad experience with them, I can understand if you do that. But if you had a good experience and you want to have them back, a follow-up. Next, this is optional, of course. Well, all this is optional, but this is something that you might want to consider. I always think of uh, David Glasser at Airshow Mastering. When I think of this, they always send out uh, kind of an email newsletter about projects they've been working on to stay in touch with their clients. You might ask your new client if they would like to get on your email list or somewhat of a newsletter, because They'll get that newsletter and they'll think, oh, you know, I got a new project. Maybe I should hire that person that I just had a great experience with. The early communication, the communication in the middle of the project and the post communication. All of that is so important. So these are just some some basics. And this is what I think about now when I'm working remotely, which I do a ton. And I want to make sure that people have a good experience. I will bend over backwards to make sure that they are taken care of. Remember, it's like a waiter at a table at a restaurant. Make sure that they have everything they need and that they're happy because if they are, they'll come back if they have a good experience and you want them to come back. That's how you build up an audio business over time. So I'm sure I missed some, some concepts. If you have some other concepts you want to you hit me to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. So uh, yeah, good luck to you and uh, keep working remotely. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Todd Burke, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to have you here. We met initially through our Dolby Atmos Mixers Network. We have yet to meet in person. I missed you at the last get-together that I came down to LA for.
0: Yeah, we got to get a beer one of these nights.
1: Yeah, I'll come back down and and we'll hang out. But anyways, good to have you here. I want to get started by asking you,
0: where did you grow up? So I grew up in a little town in Colorado, which sounds kind of sexy and cool, but it definitely wasn't. <laughs> there, there's two sides of Colorado. There's like these, there's the beautiful mountain mountain towns and ski resorts and that whole thing, and then there are the uh, rural. There's plains with there cornfields and cattle ranches and one stoplight towns. And mm. I grew up in the latter. <laughs> I grew up in a little one stoplight town, and then eventually moved to the bigger town nearby. But I'm one stoplight bred
1: which I'm kind of proud of. <laughs> and what was your upbringing like there in terms of how it related to music or technology or recording?
0: I mean, you know, I didn't really get into much of this until much later. I didn't, I think back on it, and I, I often wish I would have had like that cool older brother or sister or whatever that was turning me on to, you know, XTC or whatever. Right. <laughs> but I was a kid in the nineties and I grew up listening to Metallica and Iron Maiden and just all the kind of dumb stuff that came my way, which I'm not ashamed of, but I would have liked to have gotten a little, a little something maybe more nourishing Yeah. <laughs> as a kid. I wonder what that would have, what that would have meant to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't until after high school, I moved to Phoenix right after high school and, uh, I grew up playing drums. So I moved to Phoenix and kind of knocked around and played in a few bands in the early nineties. And, you know, right then, I, think, I mean, we're talking about like 1992. So like, I mean, what are we saying? Like the spin doctors were on the radio. <laughs> there was like there was this band from Phoenix called the Gin Blossoms that had a hit or two. Oh yeah. So there was there seemed to be for better or worse, <laughs> there was a little kind of excitement in Phoenix that summer that I moved there, and there was a bit of a scene, a bit of a music scene happening. Mm. That in hindsight wasn't maybe the the greatest stylistically, but there was some excitement there. But anyway, I I, I played in a few bands there and eventually cut wind of this recording school that had just opened which has since become i think they're still going and it's become they've got consoles and the whole campus and stuff but it's a place called the conservatory of recording arts and sciences at that time it was like a little eight channel Ramsa console and <laughs> just it was it was a little a small pile of junk in a strip mall in phoenix and they were doing classes so <laughs> it was one of the first years i think they existed and i'm not sure i learned a whole lot but Going through their curriculum gave me just enough confidence to move to LA and go knocking on some doors and try to find a real job here. So,
1: what was your introduction to LA like?
0: Mm, I had a couple of old friends from high school that had moved out a year or two before me, so I had a couch I could sleep on. But I grew up with a single mom <laughs> in my one stop light town. I think I, I moved out here. I think I had twelve hundred dollars total and no real backup plan. So I slept on I slept on their couch though for a few months. And luckily, got a job really quickly at the studio called Grandmaster, which is, I guess, sort of the biggest part of then my story is that. And it was a really unique situation, you know. I had I didn't have any real money, so I think back on it, and I think if I would have had that kind of normal story of moving out to LA and getting a job at, let's say, Sunset Sound or Capitol or someplace, where I'd probably be asked to fetch burritos for a year. Yeah. <laughs> and like really have a pretty long-winded come up. I don't think I would have made it truly because I I just, I couldn't afford that. You know, it just wouldn't have worked out. But luckily at Grandmaster, I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time, but I kind of walked into a situation where they needed someone to start assisting like right away. <laughs> the place was abandoned. It's a long story, but so Grandmaster was a studio on, on Coenga and Sunset, kind of near where Amoeba Records is now. And they've got in, neve console in eighty twenty eight in pretty bad in pretty bad shape, but there was a fairchild and eleven seventy sixes and a twenty four track and it was like it was a really nice studio. it was just kind of beaten up and worn down and they just hadn't really taken care of it. It turned out the the studio owner had just had gotten out of prison recently he'd gone away mm. for cocaine trafficking oh <laughs> so that was it was it was a whole thing like it was kind of a drug den all through the eighties basically okay ultimately they were busted. Everybody kind of went away. And that day I came knocking on the door, they were just literally starting to blow off the dust off everything and try to get everything <laughs> going again. Amazing. Right.
1: Blow the dust off. I didn't know. Any, I didn't know any of this at the time
0: right. as it, as it all sort of like became clear. I'm like, oh, huh. So I just totally lucked out basically and walk into this, into this super fucking weird, entirely Los Angeles situation, you know, like big city situation. And uh, I kind of got thrown in immediately into uh, figuring out how to be a recording engineer in a really beautiful space.
1: There's two those two parts of that is trying to figure out how to become a recording engineer, but there's also the the small town kid coming into this.
0: Oh my God! Unique, yeah. not,
1: not unique situation, but kind of radically different situation from how you grew up.
0: No, I was scared shitless. It was crazy. Like it was, I don't, I don't know how many listeners know Hollywood, but Koenga at, at that time, so this is 1992 or three or something. And that block Koenga and what's the next one over Ivar between Sunset and Hollywood. That was like a crack loop where like pretty much anywhere, any pole that you could lean against, there was a guy leaned up against that pole with like a mouth full of rocks, just slinging rocks. You know, it's crazy. So I'd go, I didn't have a car, but I would be walking home every night two three (laughs) o'clock up sunset strip to where my you know my friends lived and uh it was it was scary i'm i'm probably lucky i wasn't killed or somehow molested (laughs) (laughs) wow yeah but i was i was young i was 21 you know i moved out when i was 21 20 maybe but yeah so i pretty quickly uh ran out of money though and the studio owner i just asked him one day i just told him like look i I'm, i'm out of dough i'm either gonna have to live here, or I'm going to have to move back home. I don't know what to do. You're going to have to start paying me. And he was like, well, I can't pay you. (laughs) But if you want to live upstairs, you can. So I moved into the, I mean, I say moved in. I I hid all my possessions in a closet and then just started sleeping either on the couch in the lounge upstairs, or sometimes I just knock a gobo down in the live room and (laughs) sleep on that. You know, those big foam, those great big foam gobos with no with no wood surrounds or anything, just, just the foam. They're shockingly comfortable. It's, it's like, it was like memory foam before memory foam.
1: Wow, how old were you at this point?
0: 20, okay. 21.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. that's doable at that age.
0: Oh, totally, it was fine. It was actually fun for a while. I was good for a few years living this way. But it was right through then, Sylvia Massey had made Tools Undertow record right before I'd gotten there. So she was around an awful lot through those years. And then there was a band called The Greys that were also around a bunch, and that was a bunch of the Jellyfish guys. So I got to know Jason Faulkner and John Bryan pretty well right then. That was the cast of characters that were my start in all this, and that was a pretty cool group to be involved with <laughs> straight out of the gate. Sylvia in particular really took me under her wing, and we made a few records at Grandmaster, and she just immediately started hauling me around with her as her— she'd call me her engineer. I was like 21 and didn't—I basically just sat and watched her engineer records (laughs) on several records then and i'd help out as much as i could as much as like my little bit of knowledge allowed but she'd kind of let me waffle around with some drum sounds for five minutes on the first day and then she'd just kind of get in there and make it happen
1: (laughs) but you know in those days so we're talking early 90s still right yeah okay so did you know how to align a tape machine
0: I mean, you know, I, I figured I, I got around to all that eventually. Yeah. But the amazing thing about Grandmaster was a pretty hands-off situation, you know, where the owner didn't really have any idea. He'd always been more in the cocaine business than anything, I think. <laughs> so he was kind of an older guy just trying to make a go of the studio again. And it was just sort of left to me to figure out not only what the role of assistant engineer and engineer were, but also... I mean, I was 21 years old and under the console, having absolutely no idea what I was doing, trying to solder, <laughs> trying to fix connections and stuff on this, on this knee. you know, it's, it's ridiculous. We had a junkie, there's so many stories. We had, there was a string of junkie techs that we had, of course, because all techs seemed to be heroin junkies then. <laughs> so, so I'd always be tasked with like hanging out with, with the tech when he could come down to fix whatever, because everything was always broken and I'd be tasked with hanging out for that hour that the tech was good, see what they were doing, and about the time it was time for so-and-so to go off and take their nap, <laughs> then I'd sort of take over and try to finish what they'd started. They're ridiculous stories, but it was it was a lot of fun and, and very, very, very unique. How long did you stay there? It's probably three years or so that I was really immersed in the Grandmaster thing, and then between Sylvia being cool enough to... Credit me as engineer on a couple of records that really I was just hanging out watching her do her thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the, the the real story is that Ben Harper came in and made his, I guess, second record called "Fight for Your Mind" at Grandmaster, which I assisted, and that was with a, Had you know, Bradley, Bradley Cook has he done has he done your podcast before? No, you know Brad. No, I don't. Okay, he's he's a good guy, but he he was around the around Grandmaster a bunch in those years, but he made Ben Harper's Ben's second record, and I assisted on that. And those were my early days of trying to figure out even what an assistant did, because you know, at Grandmaster, no one told me. So, so I was just like, "You want me to? I can put the mic. You want me to put the mics up? I can. Whatever you need. Like, just tell me what you need." I, I had no idea like what what the norms were. But Brad came in with Ben, and they made "Fight for Your Mind." And on their way out, as they were loading out, the producer came into the control room. I was like zeroing out the console or whatever, and kind of gave me a little wink and just told me that they'd had a quick talk you know, we'd all hit it off. We'd come pals. And I was obviously really young, but they were thinking that maybe I would engineer the next record. So kind of a little wink and like, get yourself ready for that, which was amazing. And it just freaked, me, freaked me out. I think they actually asked me, would you want to do that? Or are you ready for that? And I was like, probably not, but I can be. I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll, I'll get ready for that. And that was it. They left. And that was, I was really on fire suddenly I mean I was already very motivated but it really I had I had like a like a goal now that was maybe a year or two off a a record cycle away I had this record that I was gonna engineer and I needed to prepare for that it was cool so I just just did that I started every every engineer that would come in on records I was really really motivated to ask all the questions you know Mm -hmm. and like really figure this out like figure out how to make records Huh. And I learned really quickly that if you ask the questions, if you're not afraid to ask, and you ask the que- the right questions at the right time, timing's everything in all this, right, that most engineers would really go far with, um, like, no one was, like, trying to guard the info, it seemed like. There was a, a very, like, kind of a mentorship culture or something that surrounded this that I keyed into really quickly and most engineers that came in were pretty quick to like take under the wing for that couple of weeks that they were in on a record and really show you the ropes, teach you everything you wanted to know.
1: You know, it's interesting that those guys would say to a young engineer, a young up and coming engineer who didn't seem to yeah. know it all back then, that's a testament to personality and getting along with people more than technical knowledge. Mm. That seems like you must have really struck a chord with them as an, just as a personality to be like hey we want to have this guy on the next record he could be cool I think
0: so I think so I mean Ben's whole universe I've been sort of in and out of his camp a couple times over the years I mean he's been at it for a long time but his his world is very much it really feels like family particularly back then you know in in the few weeks that I assisted that second record we all became really became kind of family that the connections felt really deep and brotherly and all that stuff. You know, all that sort of social stuff. There is a sort of an aspect of this gig that that I really, really, really deeply love and it is sort of the social aspect and that human connection that, you know, you spend two or three or four or five weeks with a band in a little room, all sort of huddled around a record, making it the best it can be, that creates really, really deep friendships. I love that very much. And it is a shame. I think we're all sort of spending less and less time with artists anymore it's kind of become a little bit more of an autonomous game maybe especially as mixers Mm -hmm. a lot of us are getting emailed files and mixing the files firing back the files getting in some email notes and there's not a whole lot of interaction sometimes i I, I miss that
1: yeah and and we'll dig into some concepts that you and i were talking about before the call started a little bit later on to address that but that was a great start to your career there i mean what a like a little glimmer of hope. There's like, Oh, I can work on a Ben Harper record. (laughs) Yeah. So you, you spent time asking questions and kind of arming yourself up with knowledge. What was the next big milestone for you after this place?
0: So, yeah, so it was a lot of, you know, I spent a year and a half or so then just beating the engineers that came in with questions as much as, you know, when appropriate. And then there was uh, a fair amount of downtime between records. So, during that downtime, the control of the studio was all mine. So I would, and I lived there. <laughs> so I would just, you That's know, right. I, dug, I dug into there's a tape, I found a tape vault in the garage and there were some tool outtake reels in there and there were some old red hot chili peppers demos and there were a few interesting two inch tapes in, out in the vault. And I'd just get those tapes and just go crazy with them. I'd reamp guitars and would go really far just trying to figure out the studio, you know, and fly background vocals from a chorus. Onto the half-inch machine, and try to get good at flying them onto all the choruses. Just anything I could think of. Like, look, I'm, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get really fucking good at this. <laughs> you know, like I really want to figure this out. So that could be sort of technical stuff like that, or just mixing. I'd just grab any reels I can get my hands on and mix them, and mix them, and mix them again, and really, really, really trying to figure out how to make a record sound like a record, how to make a multi-track sound like a record. Mm-hmm. And I was just constantly—that's all I did. I didn't. There was nothing else. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have any friends, buddies. You know, right. around. I was just a million percent focused on figuring out engineering.
1: But you weren't being paid. So how did you survive? Like at least from a food
0: perspective. <laughs> I was well. So I was getting eighty bucks a day. I was getting eighty dollars a day on book days. Oh. So it was. It was. I'd end up making. I'd have a couple hundred bucks a month always it was never enough to get an apartment (laughs) but it was it was always enough to eat so worked out
1: yeah where did you go from there what got you out of there
0: well so then i guess ben you know a couple years go by or a year and a half or whatever i do get a call one day mary from virgin records calls and ben harper's looking they're ready to make the next record they say they want you to engineer it what's your rate to which i was like oh fuck! i never asked anybody i don't know (laughs) So I was like, let me call you back. And so I had to call a couple people. and like, what? I don't, what's my rate? And back then, back then it was 500 bucks a day, I think. So then I called Mary back. I was like, this is my rate. Very, very enthusiastically. And like, sure enough, you know, the budget was approved. I came in and we made a record called The Will to Live, hmm. which I'm still pretty proud of, mainly because it was like the culmination of a year or so of very, very dedicated and hard work of me coming from next to zero. And being a functional engineer at that point.
1: Wow! By having your name on that, did that start to
0: snowball at all? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, uh, I did that. I made a couple of records with Sylvia. After that, oh, God, what were they even? There was an Australian band. Some stuff we, I don't think we. It's I don't think we could even find. It's a band called Horsehead from Australia, and there was another band from uh, Norway that we made a record with. I kind of vacillated then for a minute of, of then getting some engineer gigs. But then Grandmaster would call and they'd have something coming in, and they'd, they'd need me to come back and do to, to assist it. Foo Fighters came in and did color in the shape. That's with Brad Cook again. So I went back and assisted that, which was super fun.
1: That's interesting. They did color in the shape. Wasn't that with Gil Norton producing?: Yeah, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't realize that that was done down there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because Gill is English, and so I, I just assumed that it was done in England.
0: Yeah, there's a whole story to that record. They'd started making the record up in Seattle with his band. I think there was a, the, the drummer just was, the drummer was struggling. Those are real struggles. And they ended up, I think, packing it in. And Brad kept telling Dave about this great studio. Because Brad had spent a lot of time with Grandmaster over the years. And he was he was telling Dave, I guess, know look there's like this great studio. I really love it. It's down in LA. It's a little funky. It's a little smelly. But it's awesome. We really ought to. Let's just go down there. And I think they just needed to get out of Seattle as much as anything and just kind of reset on this record. So they came down, loaded in the Grandmaster, and we made The Color in the Shape. Hmm. But Dave pretty much played and sang. He played everything. He'd go out. It was amazing to watch. He'd go out and he'd play the song down, play the drums, and then go in and play some guitar, play, play a bunch of initial guitars. And then Nate and Pat, some of the other guys, would come in and do some overdubs. But it really was, I mean, Dave really did make that record. Pretty much, I don't want to say on his own, but like it was it was 95% the Dave show and then the other guys had come in and kind of overdub a little bit.
1: Which is interesting because in my mind, I assumed that that was Taylor Hawkins playing drums.
0: He wasn't around yet. Yeah. So he was still, yeah.
1: And that that coincides with, I was still like entertaining the idea of staying as a drummer and called Gil Norton because I had worked with him at some point oh. and, uh And I called him, I was like, what's the story? And he goes, oh, they got Taylor Hawkins from Alanis Morissette's band. I was like, Fuck. Right, right. I was so oh, pissed. Wow. I was like, yeah. I wanted to try
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> I just at least wanted to try. Come on. Right. Yeah. But that, that shit a What still. a fun record. What, a, what an amazing band. That's probably the coolest band to be a drummer, in, oh, I think.
1: Yeah. Super hard, though.
0: It'd be a little hair-raising to be in a band with Dave Grohl, of course, obviously. But the songs are just built for drummers. For sure.
1: So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, take me through the progression of moving through studios and coming of age in Los Angeles and kind of going from the one horse town or the one light town to (laughs) getting acclimated over time to Los Angeles. Did you ever get an apartment? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm still living there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is, we're in Grandmaster now. Yeah, so I started getting some records then here and there. And I got an apartment, sure enough, and a girlfriend, and all the kind of. I became a functional human being eventually. Yeah. I saw the sun again, and my my skin took on a slightly less pasty hue. It was incredible. <laughs> but it was it was like three or four years at Grandmaster, I suppose. Then you know, yeah, I started started getting some records, and then I spent the next five or six years having some unbelievably. Like all of us, some very fruitful times, right? You know, have several records, have back-to-back records, and then it would all, as it always does. As a freelancer, you'd find yourself with nothing for a few months and start freaking out, and decide you're going to be, it's all over, I'm done, I'll never work again, and then sure enough, the phone would ring eventually, and you'd have another little string of records. And that's been, I mean, honestly, that's been my experience. <laughs> it's that's still my experience. I still feel like sometimes, like it, okay, it's over, I'm 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 done. The phone has just stopped ringing. I don't know what I'm going to do, but, you know, I tell my wife. I'm like, I, I got to pack it in. I don't know what we're going to do. Got <laughs> to start then, selling gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gear, the gear is just a bank account for all of us.
1: In your time between being at Grandmaster and sleeping on Gobos to where you're at now, what would you say, like, are some of the, the highlights of things that you've learned that are key lessons that you find important?
0: I don't know. I mean, I go pretty quickly back to that kind of, like, brotherly or sort of family feeling that I'd feel so lucky to, in a lot of my initial projects, there really, really was a sort of, if even temporarily, a real sort of family feeling around a project, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I really do believe that it's just all about relationships. Mm-hmm. Like I tell people all the time, like, I, I feel like any, anybody can EQ a kick drum. There, there comes a point with a fair amount of work and wherewithal you can figure out the technical aspect of recording a band, or like putting up a bunch of mics on a drum kit, or putting a couple of mics on a guitar cabinet, making it sound good like all that kind of stuff the sort of artistry that is the technical part of engineering can't be overlooked. And it is very, very important, but it's not that difficult to sort out. You know, like a guy like me can figure it out half on his own given an opportunity and given sort of like the kind of mentorship aspect of being a recording engineer, the sort of mentorship aspect that's built into recording engineering. You know, if you're not afraid to ask, I think that most of us are kind of wired to be pretty quick to jump into some pretty long explanations. And I think we're all sort of wired to give back to the younger people coming up. So I I think becoming technically adept is relatively doable. I think that to really find any kind of longevity at this, It really comes down to being, I don't want to say likable, but, you know, being sort of being connected to the interpersonal connection that's possible, especially when you're, when it is a group of people huddled around a creative project, there's a real opportunity there to really connect with other people. And I think that's really important.
1: When it comes to doing sessions and dealing with clients that are, and and you probably deal with this, I think you certainly deal with this more than I do here in the Bay Area, is that you're probably dealing with some clients that have a little bit higher profile nationally, like Fitz and the Tandrums or, or Ben Harper. So artists can be, as as we all know, they can be insecure. They don't always know what they want. And I mean, it can even come down to like, what time do we show up at the studio kind of thing? Is there a balance of where you show as an engineer, as a freelancer, as some leadership by saying, well, I tell you what, I'm going to be there at eight. You guys show up at this time, if you want, or do you? are you just completely at the whims of the artist?
0: With that specific example, I feel like that's more of a budget thing. I, I always feel like that kind of stuff, it's like, look, you guys, we've got X amount of days to do this thing. And like you're saying, like the producer and I will be here at whatever time. We've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so let's just get to work. And I've been lucky enough I've worked a lot with a producer named Tony Hoffer. Mm-hmm. So on the Fitz record, for instance, and we've done a bunch of records now, a bunch of English records. There's the Kooks and the Fratellis and Bell and Sebastian. Those bands in particular, a lot of records of a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. The Kooks and the Fratellis especially, were very much young guys, really, like really living that rock star thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which can be can be hard to rein in. But in instances where it did come down to like what time to start, trying to like lay out some kind of paternal vibe on some kids. Mm-hmm. It's always just come down to budget, really. I think it, it, it becomes a pretty easy conversation where it's like, look, your label, everyone surrounds you is going to be pretty unhappy if we don't get this done with you and with me. So we've got 14 days. Don't be late. <laughs> and that usually, I've never seen the conversation go any further than that. It's the truth. But this role can oftentimes be a bit of like being the cool uncle, I suppose, with younger bands, especially. Mm-hmm. But there again, like I, I do feel like it comes down to, I always just sort of, tend to take that kind of family approach or or at least internally think of it that way where I see myself oftentimes as not as so much a father figure but like maybe like a cool older brother or an uncle or whatever just gently steering the ship without being too overwhelming
1: yeah let's talk about the financial end of things a bit you spend enough time in this business you you start to figure out how not to spend your money but even at this time where we're at in the industry like do you have a philosophy or a system for yourself and your family how you deal with finances or is it just like hey it rains or it pours or it's or the phone's not ringing
0: Yeah I wish I had a big answer about that I mean that that is the hardest part of being a freelancer is the sort of unsure my wife has got a corporate job which she hates mm-hmm. she would love to be a freelancer as well except that we would probably live under a bridge every now and then that's not true but i don't know what the answer to that is i really don't like because because it does sometimes it rains and sometimes it doesn't (laughs) or or, or whatever that's the hardest part of the gig if the gig wasn't so i guess artistically fulfilling it would be hard to keep going sometimes but it does it fulfills a big part of my heart so when times do get rough it's so far always been worth sticking it out
1: yeah do you have any rules like i don't do this with my money?
0: Nah, I don't know what those rules would be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a lack of <laughs> discipline here, Todd. <laughs> there's a major lack of discipline. I mean, I've, you know, anymore, I used to, I've spent, there's been times in my life when we've spent an extreme amount of money on gear, I suppose. And, you know, I think that all of us go through a sort of like, I call it the gear acquisition stage, where you just become a gear hound. And I'm so firmly over that, I couldn't care any less, honestly, about about gear yeah like there's there's a baseline of things that i need to do the job beyond that there's always a new a sexy new speaker and a sexy new compressor and a sexy new whatever and i find i reached a point maybe i don't know 10 years ago where it's just i don't care anymore
1: but with your current space you have the uh, space to track a full band at your space
0: no, it's just a mix room here. Just a mix room. We've both set up our Atmos rigs, which and, and that's not cheap. Mm-hmm. But that's the most recent real money that I've spent on anything has just been getting myself equipped to do Atmos.
1: Do you find by having a space to mix without having to go and rent a space has been advantageous?
0: Yeah, I mean, totally. And, there, and you know, honestly, there's a lot of gigs that I pass on because I don't have a space to record. I mean, more and more, it's becoming there's definitely less projects coming my way that can afford to go to Sunset Sound, let's say, Mm -hmm. for a couple of weeks to track. I don't see many budgets that can facilitate the old way we used to work, which was a lot of commercial studios. So yeah, I think it's forced all of us to figure out how to do everything we need to do to make a living in our own spaces.
1: In this point in your career, do you prefer mixing over tracking?
0: I don't say, I mean, it's more doable, right? Like, I mean, I've, I'm, equipped for that yeah like a lot of people i've spent so many years at sunset sound or capital wherever you know being able to once you've made a few records in a really nice room with really nice microphones on an amazing console and all that stuff it can be pretty frustrating to jump into a half equipped room with a a gnarly ceiling reflection and blah 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 (laughs) (laughs) it gets pretty frustrating yeah so i don't know i can't say i prefer mixing it's less frustrating because i'm because i can do it here and i'm and and i don't feel like i'm under equipped i can pull my hair out pretty quickly in a cheaper studio where it's just hard to get the headphones working and the the basics are difficult Mm -hmm. it's just really it's not conducive to a fun time for anybody is the truth you know so i don't know i've been saying for a long time los angeles needs a couple of 500 hundred dollar a day rooms that are usable i don't know why they don't exist maybe Some of us should get together and go in on a place or something because somehow (laughs) the commercial studios seem to be closing. The ones that are left uh, seem to be upping their price, especially post COVID here to numbers that I just can't even fathom sometimes. And it's getting very difficult. I just went through a thing. A band hit me up a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't come up with a scenario at their budget that I was comfortable being in. You know, I just didn't feel like we were going to get anything good out of it. It's a shame. You know, it's really a bummer. Wow. Huh. Meaning, I didn't want to take the gig and do a worse, do sort of a, a shittier job than they would get finding someone with their own space that they knew really, really well. Because there's a lot to be said for that. You know, like there are definitely some studios around LA by guys who maybe didn't come up in commercial rooms, but have sort of just figured out a kind of like, let's just call it a B level setup where they can do really high level work. Yeah. And I get hit up by bands pretty often where I kind of come to that conclusion and I'm just honest with them. Like, you're going to be better off with a scenario like that than by trying to get me into someone's garage or in, into kind of a, a, a semi ramshackled studio. We're not going to do world-class work. So I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. You know? Well, that's interesting. Cause like, I get such a great rate going to SharkBite studios up here in the Bay area, which is in Oakland by Jack London square. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a DIY room in terms of like, you're not going to get an assistant and catering and all that. It's, it's like yeah. very bare bones, yeah. but it's super functional, great drum room at an affordable price. yeah. But I see what you're saying. It would be great to have a space where a group of engineers could rent their own mix rooms, but then have access to a live room for a particular rate.
0: There was a studio called Radio Recorders, and I for a while was trying to put together. It was it was ripe for exactly that thing. It Had a great tracking room with a with a control room, and then this long hallway of sort of what what could be like edit bay slash mix rooms. And yeah, that'd be we're just dreaming here, but that would be fantastic. And maybe I'm missing the boat. Maybe there's some place in LA I don't know of. If so, I'd love to know about them. But I am forever looking for a five or six hundred dollar a day spot to do some high level tracking, and I, I can't find it.
1: Yeah, and the only thing that I can think of would be the Lemon Tree facility where I think that you can tie into a live room there from your own rental room. I don't know if that's completely accurate, but that's my memory Mm. of visiting the PMC guys over there.
0: Mm. I know a lot of guys in sort of in my situation who have sort of built out their own spaces for mixing and are perfectly happy with that. But don't have. I'm not. I'm not looking to rent. I'm not looking to spend monthly money on a place. Mm-hmm. Just in an affordable tracking space. I don't know how it doesn't exist.
1: Yeah. Is this space at your at your home or is this a space you rent?
0: Yeah. No. This is my. This is my house.
1: Oh. Okay. Great. Is it a separate unit from the house or within the house?
0: The studio space I'm in is a two-car garage. So I've got. There's a little booth here that doubles as my. So my. I said my wife's got a corporate editing job. But she's also a novelist. She's on her fourth or fifth novel now. But so that's kind of her writing room/slash vocal booth. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm just in this. And I've got a wide shot. This is just my, you know, this is my space.
1: Wow. Okay. An audience. I'm sorry if if you're not part of the WCA membership, you can't see that. But let's talk about this for a second. So, audience, just for some perspective, as Todd and I were talking over here on Zoom, he was showing me he's got multiple camera angles controlled by a little black magic controller. And tell me about that. Tell me about working in today's mixing environment and trying to make it a little more like interactive with the people you work with remotely.
0: Yeah. So I've gone pretty far with that. Getting into the pandemic, so I guess a couple of years ago, it became pretty clear that people were going to be coming by less often. (laughs) I was going to be having less attended mixes, right? Mm -hmm. So I did. I had a couple of cameras laying around and started trying to come up with a scenario where I could try to create a Zoom situation or a FaceTime situation that felt as much like being here as possible. So like you just said, I've got three cameras, three sort of angles. One of them is as if you're on the couch <laughs> behind me. One of them is this angle we're talking on now, which is as if you're kind of like next to me at the desk and there's another side shot. But the idea is just, I feel like it should be somewhat of an experience. And not that I feel like that I'm this great experience. I'm not saying that, but like I, if, I, if I imagine being an artist and getting to that point where, you know, I've been slaving away on these tracks and I've got my, I've got my project ready to mix, when I envision that, I envision going, mixing a record with a guy, like watching them work and sort of being involved and like getting excited at certain points and getting excited when the drums are right and like all that, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to set this up as much as possible so that I can give clients an option. You can send me tracks and I'll send you tracks back and we can do this over email but I'd prefer you get involved as much as possible. And particularly during the pandemic, maybe that looked like us sitting on Zoom, but me giving you a couple of, trying to make the visual as kind of striking as possible and making it easy to interact. This was my solution for that.
1: Let's talk about that. If you're doing some remote mixing with people, is it safe to assume you're using like audio movers to send them the audio?
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, well, and, you know, Zoom audio, yeah, let's not get into Zoom Audio. It's, it's improved, but, you know, it's still a little dodgy. There's some settings you can set where it gets pretty good, but, uh, yeah. So I usually use Audio Movers. We'll do an Audio Mover stream to then your browser. And then over Zoom or FaceTime, whatever you prefer, FaceTime kind of boxes the video vertically, which is a little bit annoying. But whatever you prefer, we can, we can do some sort of video call. And like I say, I mean, I, I, I love it. I love those moments of, like, getting excited about a thing together. Rather than trying to come up with every adjective in the world to get to the finish line, coming up with adjectives is fine, but it's pretty limiting. If you can sit with someone, even over Zoom, and like just look at body language and see someone's eyes as well as possible, you can see when you're getting close. <laughs> you yeah. know, you can see when there's some excitement there, and that that's the thing. Like, I don't want to talk about all the all the things I miss so often. I'm, I don't want to sound like such a bummer or such a such a downer, but There's a lot to be said for being in a room with artists, you know, and a a lot of what we do as engineers is it's so much about reading body language and about sort of getting intuitive, finding someone's artistry and helping them find what's right in that moment for whatever you're talking about in that moment has everything to do with that. It's, It's a tremendous leap of like intuition.
1: When you're mixing with people online, are you... You're not mixing from scratch, are you? I assume you're just doing mix revisions with them, or is that not right?
0: It depends. I mean, I'd love to get a mix to get to the point that I would, like, I like to tell people at the point that I would, in the old days, I'd be yelling down the hall, like, hey, this isn't done, but come check this out. I just want some feedback. Like, just come listen, because that's always been the thing, right? Like, in the days when we were all in a building together in a commercial studio, it was all about getting the kids in at various points, whether you're tracking or mixing or whatever, you're always looking for feedback, you know, like getting drum sounds together on the first day. I'm watching meters. I'm also watching everyone's feet to see who's tapping and like see who's responding. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like anything that we can do these days with technology to sort of try to get some of those clues again, I think it's everything. Hmm. You know, like I've, I've never really taken the stance of like, oh, I'm Todd Burke. Send me your tracks. I'll do my thing and you're going to love it. Like. <laughs> I don't even know what that would smell like exactly. You know, like I'm sort of always trying to find your vision as an artist. I don't know how else to do this, you know, other than to really try to find what's right for everyone in the room at that moment. And that's a sort of weighted scale. You know, if you're doing a project with a producer, if you got a big-name producer sitting next to you, Mm -hmm. which I sometimes have, it's a weighted scale on that producer's body language is going to outweigh the bass players. (laughs) if you're honest, but like, you're still like, we're trying to please everybody in the room. I've always taken the engineering seat very much as sort of like a service, not only the, the art itself, but everybody in the room and just be helpful. Like, it's like I'm gonna get us to the finish line right now. Let's do this. I've always just taken that that approach. And so yeah. the cameras and this whole thing, it's all, I, I suppose, I haven't really thought about it so deeply ever, <laughs> but I suppose it's all sort of in service of that same kind of idea. You know, it I got that same goal in mind.
1: Let's talk about record better. Yeah. Tell me how this came to fruition, and what's the elevator pitch to the average person listening?
0: I've tried to do elevator pitches. I'm too long-winded. <laughs> but truly, going back to that that sort of magical year that I talked about at Grandmaster with keying into this mentorship culture, you know, or this mm-hmm. this idea that if you ask the right questions at the right time, most engineers will just light up and and give it back. Because I, I think I've known a lot of engineers who were very, very wired to give back—it's that circular thing where I owe such a debt to so many engineers like Brad and Sylvia, who helped me so much to figure out my path. I feel like, sort of karmically, I need to give that back. It's—it's a, it's a pretty simple, it's a pretty simple idea. Mm-hmm. So, really, Record Better is—I guess—I really am trying to create that sort of mentorship cycle uh-huh. in a new way online. So. This was all, again, during the pandemic, I kind of had an opportunity to step off the hamster wheel a little bit, and I had some time to myself. I was getting floated a little PPP money from a composer buddy of mine who I'd worked with a bunch. And I kind of had some time on my hands and had been kicking the tires on this idea for quite a while and decided to put it into motion. So Record Better is, at the moment, it's a bunch of videos that I made with some friends, with Ken Sluter, who I think has been on. Yeah, Ken's been on. Have you had Husky Huskolds on ever? No. So Husky's another friend of mine. He's made a bunch of amazing records. there's some other guys, but basically I reached out to some friends, some other engineering friends, talked about this sort of mentorship cycle and all of them were like, I agree and I'd love to be involved. So we put together some videos and the idea was to make a pretty complete course of videos pertaining to like becoming a recording engineer, the inside scoop and the, the technical nitty gritty of recording bands there's a thousand things like this i suppose at this point right there's no lack of videos <laughs> about eq and kick drums but there aren't a lot of videos about the real basic stuff like phase relationships and the, the real unsexy stuff like choosing a mic pre you know if you've got four mic pre's in front of you how do you which one do you pick for an acoustic guitar or whatever like the real fundamental stuff there aren't a ton of videos about those it seems so that was sort of our take is that like, look, look, let's make a fundamentals course that really, really hammers down the things that if you were a young person jumping onto YouTube, trying to figure out how to make better sounding recordings, and you're watching videos of CLA or whoever <laughs> talking about how they get a drum sound, that's all super awesome. But if you don't, if you don't have like the, the fundamental, concepts of how to sort out the phase relationships between 12 microphones on a drum kit Mm -hmm. you can watch cla eq and that cla eq and that kick drum but it's not going to help you you're not going to be any more equipped to get a decent drum sound at the end of that video yeah so that's the idea we made a bunch of videos it's at recordbetter.com and we've got a bunch of ideas on ways that we could do some some live streams or some in-person things at studios there's there's a whole bunch of ideas we've got for ways to blow this out we're kind of waiting to see how it just plays out in the next few months here, probably.
1: But that's great that you're putting that information out there, period. Again, there's
0: no, the, I think a lot of people had this similar idea, <laughs> maybe, because it feels like there's a bunch of videos now. It's just like that whole thing. When you buy a certain car, you see that car everywhere. And you're like, <laughs> oh, I thought I was the only one who wanted to buy that car. <laughs> I know. I had this great idea. I thought it was so unique. It's not, right? Yeah. So we'll see what happens with it. At the moment, I've got the Fundamentals course parked at 50 bucks or something. You not know, super inexpensive. And I do think that even, even if you've maybe been making some recordings, on your laptop or whatever, if you're a younger person, if you're really any kind of musical creator, I'll bet that if you spent a little time with the fundamentals course that we made, you'd come away with some fundamentals that you maybe hadn't thought of before. And, you know, it, it is the stuff. It's mostly, it's all the stuff that when I think back to that year that I was trying to get my act together, getting ready for this Ben Harper record, mm. it's sort of all the stuff that I was trying to figure out.
1: And, you know, I'm a, a particular advocate for even if you've been a pro for a long time and you know how to, whatever, pick a mic pre, mic a kick drum, mic a drum set. I love just going and seeing what other people are doing to see if there's any yeah. little details. that I'm like, ooh, I like that little tiny bit. I'm going to steal that idea and, totally. and add that to my my tool belt.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it is sort of a shame sometimes that, like, I wish I could spend more time with other recording engineers working and just sort of see how other guys work cuz if you came up in a commercial room you got some of that when you were in your young years watching other guys work and learning what they did right and sort of seeing where they were failing and there was like a just like this exponential growth that could come on from watching that mm-hmm. and if that's not a part of your equation if you're maybe a young creator now and that's like moving to LA and getting an internship at Sunset Sounds not in the cards for you and that's a pretty select group that's, that's looking to do that these days, right? So yeah. it's likely not in the cards for you. I think that's the idea of record better. Like let's get a few engineers doing redundant lessons on how to sort out facial relationships on a drum kit. Let's just stick with that for a second. Right now we've got a fundamental course on that, but eventually I'd like to do as many guys as, as would like to do it, videos on a whole bunch of different guys sorting out the facial relationship on a drum kit. And then it would be, you could, for a young creator, kind of approximate what that what it was like being an assistant back in the day and watching people succeed and fail, try to create a new version of that experience.
1: Yeah, because I think that certain engineers take different approaches. Some take a very yeah. mathematical, scientific approach to their craft, others take a more, shoot from the hip, musical, Uh, let's just toss whatever mic we got in the room up there on that particular instrument, see what happens. So there's very different schools of thought. So your idea, I think of, I would love to see like six videos in a row of six different engineers, like, well, this is how I mic the kick drum. And this is, I use this mic and here's how it sounds and here's the result. And then like compare that across totally a few, few different people and be like, Oh, ooh I like that way. That way works for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that idea.
0: Yeah, which is what we all did as we were coming up, you know, back in the day. And these days you can dig through some videos, but it, I agree. I think it would be a really, really cool to put that together. That's in the plan book <laughs> for record better to try to create a situation just like that.
1: So for the audience, I'll put obviously show note links there for you for not only Todd's website, but the Record Better website and anything else I can come up with to you in the direction of Todd and his activities. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: well, Todd, thank you so much. I appreciate you making time for me and I'll see you online until I
0: see you. My pleasure. All right. Well, you take care. Thanks very much, Matt.
1: Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Really appreciate you tuning in week after week. Remember, if you do like the show and you want to help the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, five stars, a written review, et cetera, and that will greatly help the show. Certainly would appreciate it. But that's all for me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss,